This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers. Episode 12, A New Rogues Gallery, Part 1. We're down to the last two episodes of our look at the most influential tabletop games of the past 30-odd years, which means I have to try and decide which two out of the thousands of games that have been released in the latter half of the 2010s will be the most influential. This is a fool's task. Like painting, music, literature, and film, tabletop has reached a self-aware maturity and splintered into many genres and subgenres. It's no longer possible to have a deep knowledge of the entire medium anymore. There's simply too much being generated and not enough time to take it in anymore. Like Lucy and Ethel trying to wrap chocolates whizzing by on a conveyor belt that keeps speeding up, it sometimes feels like a losing battle to keep up. I have no way of knowing, and neither do you, what trends are going to be proving decisive or which new designers are going to be the Garfields, Moons, and Toybers of tomorrow. All I can do for these last two episodes is quickly and superficially survey the tabletop scene and pick out two games that seem to continue the narrative of the tabletop art form I've been trying to construct over these past months. So, there's a good chance that neither of the two games I've picked for these next two episodes will actually prove to be game changers on the same level as Dominion, Cards Against Humanity, or Gloomhaven. But I am confident that the trends they represent are significant going forward. The first wave of modern tabletop designers were primarily European, and as we've seen, mainly German. There were some exceptions, Richard Garfield and Alan R. Moon, to name two, but the first wave of games were called German games, or Euro games, for a reason. Still, over the 2010s, as tabletop spread around the world, core groups of hardcore fans sprang up in lots of countries, from whom emerged a new wave of designers, and Europe was no exception. This new generation of what I'm going to call Neuro game designers came of age playing games where area control, worker placement, and deck building mechanics weren't innovations so much as fundamental building blocks of design. The result, as we'll see, is that Neuro game designers had a tendency to create games even on the lighter end of the spectrum that required a greater cognitive load than first generation games. Plus, since designers can't help but reflect the tastes and sensibilities of their local gaming groups who provide their influence and pool of playtesters, their games have tended to fall into schools defined by region, as we saw with Japan and Love Letter in episode 10. I'm going to start my European tour with the country that has produced what I think are the most idiosyncratic and versatile group of designers, Poland. And no one better epitomizes the Polish design aesthetic better than Ignacy Czuracek. Originally founding Portal Games to do RPGs in the late 90s, since 2009 he's turned his hand to a wide variety of tabletop themes and mechanics, from relatively straightforward economic euros like 2010's Prêt-à-Porter to unique designs like 2009's Stronghold, and perhaps his best and most robust design, 2012's Robinson Crusoe, Adventures on the Cursed Island. Robinson Crusoe comes about as close as possible to a survival crafting-type board game as you can get. 
using a modified action placement mechanism that had players working together on one of six missions provided in the box, Churachek's design for Crusoe was utterly unique, immersive, and very challenging. In 2017, Churachek tried to duplicate Crusoe's success with First Martians, with players struggling to survive on the surface of Mars instead of the mysterious jungle islands of the Pacific. While the game had much promise, it failed to live up to many gamers' expectations, mainly because of its reliance on an app for generating the events and keeping track of gameplay. We play board games to get away from technology, was the cry from tabletop purists. Indeed, other promising app-driven designs such as Eric Lang's XCOM The Board Game were received with the same complaint. Churachek, though, continued to believe in the possibilities of app-driven games and simply moved on. He went on to design a game with a different target market, one which would be more receptive to using technology with their board games. Detective, released in 2018, was a modernization of the classic Sherlock Holmes consulting detective game that I discussed in episode 8, and it has proven much more popular, spawning many sequels. By his own admission, Churachek's biggest flaw as a designer is his rules writing, a problem he shared with several others I'll be talking about. Churachek's non-linear way of thinking means his rule books are pretty poorly organized, with bits and pieces scattered all over the place and many assumptions not spelled out. I very much remember breaking out his game 51st State one night at a board game evening thinking, oh, only eight pages of rules, no problem, I can teach this. It took over an hour to piece it all together, and even then there were plenty of times when a rules question came up and I'd flip back and forth looking and thinking, I know I saw something somewhere about this, or sometimes we'd come up against an edge case or a seeming rules exception and the rules had nothing to say about it. What I'm saying is that the second or even third edition of any Churachek game is bound to have better rules than the first. Churachek himself, in his excellent book, Games That Tell Stories, uh, published in 2012, and its sequel, published in 2016, says that he looks at his game's designs as iterations towards a finished product, as opposed to finished products themselves. Which is all well and good for him, I suppose, but fans like me get a bit frustrated as he gets the bugs worked out from edition to edition. Next on the list is Michael Orach, who is more of a specialist than Churachek, preferring tactical faction-driven games with post-apocalyptic or science fiction themes. His 2006 game, Nurishima Hex, is a puzzly arena-style combat game set in a Mad Maxian world, which has been used as a backdrop for a whole series of games. Then he took a break from game design until summoned by Churachek in 2012 to present some ideas for new games the result of which was 2013's Theseus the Dark Orbit, and a jump restart to Orach's tabletop career. Its Mancala's scoop-up-and-distribute mechanics were set in the corridors of a derelict space station. 2016's Cry Havoc is a car-driven game with alien races vying for planetary control. Then, in 2017, Orach headed up the project that took the very successful indie survival game This War of Mine and brought it to tabletop. Set in a nameless city during a modern siege, and loosely based on the battle for Sarajevo in the 1990s, players work together not as soldiers, but civilians, just trying to stay alive while all around them is death and starvation. 
Using a choose-your-own-adventure-like paragraph-driven system, along with worker placement and crafting mechanics, this war of mine is, in my opinion, one of the most successful ports of a video game ever. Cory Konichka, who has worked mainly for Fantasy Flight through his career, has, like Orach, specialized in science fiction games with a particular gift for working with existing IP. His first major design was the board game version of the hugely popular online game StarCraft in 2007. Also that year, he worked on Fantasy Flight's Tide of Iron, their attempt to provide a more complex tactical-level World War II game for those who wanted to move up from Memoir 44. In 2008, he designed the tie-in board game for the then-hit TV show Battlestar Galactica. BSG the board game perfectly captured the paranoia and uncertainty of the show through its semi-cooperative hidden role mechanic. Players began the game working together to deal with crises, but at a certain point, some were randomly assigned the role of Cylon traders. From then on, the trader's job was to sabotage the crew's efforts for as long as possible before being discovered, and everyone else's job was to figure out who the Cylons were. This was all aided by the mechanic whereby everyone's contributions to solving crises were kept secret, so players had to use deduction, bluff, and intimidation to navigate the fraught politics. The board game franchise was very successful, spawning three expansions, but ultimately going out of print after the series ended, thus turning BSG into a much-hunted grail game. It was ahead of its time with its use of social deduction, but was too complex to attract too much of an audience beyond the fans of the show, and so as we saw in episode 8, it was the resistance, which appeared two years later, that really put social deduction on the map. Konichka's next three important designs were both spin-offs or sequels to well-known tabletop franchises. 2010's Space Hulk Death Angel turned the beloved Games Workshop minis-driven game into a solo card game, which managed to distill the sprawling tactical combat into a tight, compact package with plenty of replayability. It too has gone out of print and become much sought after. Then in 2012, he worked with Kevin Wilson to produce the second edition of Fantasy Flight's dungeon-crawling franchise Descent. And in 2013, he designed Eldritch Horror, a standalone Lovecraftian game which turned the battle against the Old Ones into a global conflict, with researchers combing the planet for artifacts and fighting off minions. In the latter half of the 2010s, Fantasy Flight handed Konichka the keys to the Star Wars franchise, and he turned out a series of very successful games set in that universe that went from covering the entire conflict 2016's Rebellion, to giving players a taste of the rogue's life, 2019's Outer Rim, to campaign-driven tactical combat, 2014's Imperial Assault, to collectible card-and-dice-driven combat, 2016's Destiny. Star Wars has been very, very good to Fantasy Flight and Cory Konichka. To me, the Polish designer school embodies a kind of Slavic darkness and moodiness in their themes, with an emphasis on science fiction and dystopias, perhaps as a legacy of their time in the Soviet orbit. Now we head south to the Mediterranean to check out the Italian school of modern tabletop design. Flaminia Brassini, Virginio Gili, Daniele Tascini, and Simone Luciani. This group of four often collaborate on games as well as working independently, so it can be hard to tease out who's responsible for what. 
Rossini and Gigli were first on the scene in 2006 with Leonardo da Vinci, and then Egizia in 2009. Tashini and Luciani came along in 2012 with Solkin, whose interlocking gears and delayed worker placement mechanism was, you might recall, a direct influence on Isaac Childress's first design, Forged War. It was also the first of what I call the T-series of heavy Mesoamerican games, all starting with the letter T. I'll get to those in a bit. After Tolkien, Gili and Tassini collaborated on 2015's more traditional Euro Grand Austria Hotel, and Tassini and Luciani designed 2016's Voyages of Marco Polo. Also in 2016, Rossini, Gili, and Luciani worked together on Lorenzo il Magnifico, which spawned not just an expansion and a standalone card-driven sequel, but also a digital port that arrived in late 2020. Rossini and Gili's next work together was 2018's Coimbra, while Tashini went solo with the next T-Series game, Teotihuacan. Luciani, meanwhile, began to work with new collaborators, First, Nestore Mangione for 2018's Newton, and then Tommaso Battista for 2019's Barrage. Tassini spent 2019 working on Trismegistus with Federico Pierlorenzi, and in 2020 released Tekenu, Obelisk of the Sun, in collaboration with David Turci, a Hungarian based in the Netherlands who'd already worked with Tashini on the solo mode for Teotihuacan and through this had begun to make a name for himself developing solo modes for other designers as well. Don't worry about keeping all of these names and dates and games straight. I just want you to see that the Italian scene was very collaborative and leaned towards more complex and heavy games. Tashini in particular seems to revel in piling mechanic on mechanic on mechanic, with theme being only incidental, but the games are always visually flashy, from the gears of Tolkien to the pyramid tiles of Teotihuacan to the obelisk of Tekenu, and so on. While certainly these T-series games, which I call dreadnought games, are solid and intellectually stimulating, I do wonder whether all the machinations and combos and planning without a compelling theme are all just sound and fury signifying nothing. But obviously there is a market for these games and they all rate highly on BGG because longtime gamers have, like the designers themselves, become habituated to similar designs. Those simpler games just don't provide the same adrenaline rush anymore, so they require higher doses of game mechanic. There is something fitting in the idea that the Italian branch of modern tabletop would produce designs that were the equivalent of Baroque music and Rococo architecture. Now we turn to the Portuguese, who are stereotyped, I am told, as outgoing, industrious, hairy, and crazy drivers. Can we identify these traits in the games of their most prominent designers? Well, let's start with the team of Nuno Bizarro Sentierio and Paolo Soledade. They've certainly been industrious over the past decade, managing to get a game a year published from 2013 onwards, five of them being economic-themed games. Madeira, a dice worker placement game, Panamax, a pick-up-and-deliver game with dice used for action selection, Nippon, an area majority game, La Stanza, a somewhat lighter set collection game set in the Renaissance, and Brazil, a card-driven game about gold mining in, where else, Brazil. 
Sandwiched in between these economic games were two lighter games with distinctly Portuguese themes. The 2016 deck builder I Love Portugal and 2018's multiplayer Tetrisi Arayal. The other major Portuguese designer is Lone Wolf Vital Lacerda. Since 2010's Vinhos, he has released a game roughly every 18 months, and his releases have been greeted by increasingly adoring noises by tabletop cognoscieti for their depth and cohesion. Thematically, he's all over the place, from economic games like Vinhos, to science fiction settlement in On Mars, to the art world of The Gallerist, to the post-heist capers of Escape Plan, to trying to wean the planet from fossil fuels in CO2. Mechanically as well, Lacerda refuses to be pigeonholed. He tends to combine and integrate multiple systems tightly, making his games difficult to classify. In his 2014 Kanban, for example, worker placement is what drives gameplay, but action points, tile drafting, and resource management are also present in roughly equal measures after that. Like those of the Italian school, Lacerda's designs are complex and heavy, but in my opinion are much more tightly integrated with their themes. Their many interrelated systems and many paths to victory can be overwhelming for even experienced players like myself, because you can't really break them down into smaller pieces. You have to hold the whole rule set in your head to play the game. On the other hand, the strong integration with theme means that most of the systems are internally consistent and, once you've absorbed them, easy to remember. There are so many other Neurogame designers I could and should cover. The French, the Czechs, the UK, Russia. It pains me how many I have to leave out for the interest of time. But I'm hoping to cover them if I ever get to do a season two. But now we must head back to the fatherland, to the cradle of modern tabletop to see what the Germans have been up to. What have the Germans been up to? And we will find out in part zwei. That was part one of episode 12 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table.